Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This week on the California Report magazine, the family biz. From corner stores to corporations, going into business can be challenging, but imagine doing it with your family. In San Francisco, we'll hear how the Sanchez family has adapted to changing times. So we don't really think of ourselves as business people, we're just doing things together. And what does banana cream pie have to do with Chinese food? Nothing. But for one family in Sacramento, that unlikely combo has led to an award-winning restaurant where the whole family lends a hand. Like most immigrant family, you're just expected to help out in the business. Plus, cows brought a ranching couple together, but Hollywood helped their business thrive. I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Before we start today, go look in your fridge. Do you have a little plastic tub of fresh salsa? If you do, you may have a San Francisco family to thank. They've been in business together a long time, nearly 100 years. Marisol Medina Cadena brings us the story of the Sanchez family and their biz, Casa Sanchez. Martha Sanchez has red salsa in her DNA. She grew up in her parents' tortilla factory that doubled as a Mexican restaurant in San Francisco's Mission District. The restaurant was our living room. We would all go there after work, after school. We would go hang out, and we would just drop in. It's where Martha and her sister Liz learned the ins and outs of running a business. Growing up, all our friends, that would be their first job. My father would have them, you know, clean the the sidewalk or something. Open since 1968, the restaurant wasn't just a place to eat. Martha says it was a neighborhood institution. I remember on Sundays, my mom would make breakfast at the restaurant, so the whole neighborhood would come. I didn't know that. I thought they came to see me. But they came for my mom's bacon and eggs that you could smell up and down the street. Martha says her grandfather, Roberto Sanchez, dreamed of having a successful business long before he made the journey to California from Nayarit, Mexico. He crossed the border at Texas, and he brought a 20-pound tortilla press made out of wrought iron, and you would just churn them out. In 1923, her grandfather set up shop in San Francisco's Fillmore District, selling tamales, enchiladas, and tortillas by the pound. 
As the neighborhood became the hotspot for jazz and bebop, the family opened their own jazz club next to their tortilla factory. It was called Club Sanchez, and legends like Charlie Parker were known to jam there. And there were a lot of spontaneous musicians that would just come in, and it, it was just so vibrant. Martha and Liz remember their stylish tias running the club. They wore 60s bouffant hairstyles and ranchera off-the-shoulder blouses. When the family noticed their Latino customers were leaving the neighborhood, they followed them to the Mission District. There, they started making tortillas for everyone. For Chevy's, for Taco Bell, yeah. when they all first started. So there was a boom, and then a bust, like, immediately. Because then Taco Bell started making their own, Chevy started making their own. That's when, once again, the Sanchez family decided to do something different to stay open. Liz and Martha's mother had always loved fresh salsa. And no one was selling it in the 1970s just the kind in jars. Then more affordable plastic became available and changed the game. Today, the third and fourth generation Sanchez family members are still making fresh salsa at their tiny but bustling factory in San Francisco. It's like Grand Central Station at four in the morning here. You can't get through. I see images of La Virgen de Guadalupe and family photos adorning their walls. There's this one photo of young Martha and Liz and their whole family looking like the Mexican-American Brady Bunch. I'd get up every, every day at 5 in the morning at 8 years old, 9 years old, help my grandmother out. So I kind of naturally learned the business just watching and looking. That's Martha's nephew, Rob. He manages this factory. Of course, Luis has the main ingredient over there with all the love. Luis is one of the employees. And that love Rob is talking about? Well, Luis spent most of the morning massaging over 12,000 pounds of tomatoes to unlock their fresh taste. It's part of the family's secret recipe that fans can't seem to duplicate. There was a website dedicated to trying to decipher the recipe and one person posted that it was a combination of seven different chilies. So none of them were able to figure it out. Not only are the Sanchez family pioneers of producing packaged fresh salsa, but they're also marketing legends. And I knew that it would pay off because nobody can eat the same thing every single day. Back in 1999, Martha put a sign on the storefront that explained if you get a tattoo of their Jimmy the Corn Man logo, a guy wearing a yellow sombrero riding a corn-shaped rocket, then you were entitled to a free meal for life. We had a joke where if, you, if you're good looking, you have to show it all the time, and if not, just show it once and we'll remember. And Martha's idea worked. The tattoo deal attracted national attention, even became a Jeopardy trivia question. They brought back the tattoo promo in 2010. Four years later, their mom died. So they closed the restaurant and decided to focus on wholesale production instead. Together, the Sanchez family is still coming up with new ways to stay current, like producing an IPA beer and a game for smartphones. So we don't really think of ourselves as business people. We're just doing things together. No matter how the biz evolves, they say they'll always be rooted in San Francisco. We're never going to leave the city. I mean, the burrito was invented here in the Mission District. So we're... The Mission District, San Francisco, is where we belong. We know everyone, everyone knows us. While the Sanchez family doesn't have plans to reopen their restaurant, they still honor that tattoo special. 
So if you see their delivery trucks around, just flash your Jimmy the Corn Man and you'll get your share of salsa and chips. For the California Report, I'm Marisol Medina Cadena. Jim and Mary Rickert came together because of cows. They met and fell in love at Cal Poly. Within a decade, they were managing a ranch just below the Oregon border in Siskiyou County. It was a struggle. For the series California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse found out their lives and the business changed when they got an unexpected offer. And just a note of caution, this story contains scenes in a slaughterhouse and a description of cows being broken down. Just outside the slaughterhouse at Prather Ranch, co-owner Mary Rickert gives me plastic booties, a rubber apron, and a hard hat to wear over my headphones. We'll just go in right now, if you're ready. I'm ready, yeah. I've never stepped on a kill floor before. Instead of the smelly, chaotic scene I expect, the seven workers here move around each other and four carcasses, almost like a dance. So just on the other side of that panel, is the animals knocked unconscious. The throats are slit. They have to be bled out. Then they're laid on this cradle. What are you doing right now? I'm skinning the beef. Workers remove organs and the spinal cord, then cut the carcass in half with a saw. And Emily Rosecrans takes over. With brightly painted nails, she trims off imperfections from the carcass. I look for hair, feces, um, bruises, pretty much anything that I wouldn't want to eat. After a thumbs up from the on-site USDA inspector. I wash it and then um, I spray it with vinegar, which is a natural antiseptic. I meet Mary's husband, Jim, away from the main action while he's boning out the cow head. You kind of have to know how an animal's put together so you can take it apart. He puts all the meat he says he wouldn't feed to his grandchildren on one tray. That'll be sold as pet food. And the really good stuff goes on another tray. And I know people love beef cheeks. There's a nice beef cheek right there, and that uh, it goes down to a restaurant in San Francisco, and as I recall, they, they sell a dinner there, beef cheek dinner for $75. I've never been able to afford one, but that's what I hear. The people in this room work carefully. There are the USDA standards and Jim's grandchildren test, but they'll also be selling parts of these animals to companies in the biomedical field. The hides, for example, go to make purified collagen solution used in cell research. And bones, some have been made into screws for things like knee surgery. Cow bones are real popular. I mean, like there's the one company that takes them and makes all this stuff for dental work. Grinds them up for fillings. Another company is researching ways to replace parts of our bones. They're using Prather Ranch cow bones, which have been 3D printed with human cells. Pretty strange science, but really fascinating. And, you know, we like doing our part of it. If we're going to take the animal's life, I believe that we have a moral obligation to use, utilize the animal as much as possible. First, it's good business, but it's good morals. Companies come to Jim and Mary for lots of bovine parts. We've done all the way from pituitary glands to eyeballs to uteri to pericardium. In the early 90s, as young ranch managers, the Rickards faced a money-losing business. They had to get creative. So I shrank the herd down to about 250 mother cows. We just didn't buy replacement females. We kept them from the herd. 
creating what's now known as a closed herd. All animals in the herd are born within it, and no new ones are introduced. That decision changed everything, because at the same time, two things were happening that, on the surface, seemed to have nothing to do with each other. The first, an animal health scare. Mad cow disease was really uh, developing into a real serious health crisis in the United Kingdom and Europe. The second, a beauty trend dermal fillers. That's the ladies with the puffy lips and all that sort of stuff. Remember the pillowy lips of actresses in the 1990s? That filler came from collagen injections that came from cow hides. And an old friend of the Rickards, an early pioneer in collagen dermal fillers, knew that Pray the Ranch had a closed herd, which made it much less susceptible to problems like mad cow disease. He knew he could make a cleaner, safer collagen with their cow hides, so he called them up. And I remember going, really? Puffy lips wasn't exactly in in our uh, primary life goal at that point. But the Rickards wanted to keep the ranch going. That collagen company built them the slaughterhouse on site. Eventually, biomedical companies came knocking for cow parts, too. He won't tell me much about the financials, but Jim says there have been years when they've made more money selling beef byproducts for medical use than they made selling beef. This would be the knuckle end and this is the hip bone. In the processing room, employee Greg Holbrook shows me how he preps a femur bone for a medical client. I'm going to cut this piece off and leave a little bit of the marrow bone. Double bags the bone. One, one bone per bag. And sends it through a vacuum sealer. To FedEx to places like San Diego, Florida, Brooklyn. One result of meeting all the FDA standards to sell the parts to medical companies, the Rickards set themselves up to produce really high-quality beef. It's sought after and pretty expensive. Before I leave, Mary Rickert tells me more about what binds her together with her husband, Jim, a belief in handling animals gently until the very last minute. She walks me to the knockbox, where cows get knocked out by a stun gun before being moved to the kill floor. She points out a quote by the animal behaviorist Temple Grandin, who advocates for humane slaughter of livestock. The quote speaks to the sacredness of the place where an animal dies. I wanted... Uh, to put that over our knockbox so that we always remember that this animal is giving its life, not only for food, but to improve the quality of life for people uh, for medical reasons. She says she wants everyone at the slaughterhouse to think about that. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Siskiyou County. This piece was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization. On Frank Fat's menu, alongside the honey-glazed barbecue pork and the mandarin duck, is another one of their specialties, banana cream pie. That unusual addition is just part of what's made the Fat family so successful. Bianca Taylor brings us a story about a Sacramento restaurant that's beloved for its founder as much as its food. It takes something special to keep a restaurant running in the same place for 80 years. That something special is Frank Fat. Here's his son, Jerry. My dad wasn't actually a chef, per se. He knew good food. 
and uh, unfortunately you don't get to meet him, but it was his personality, I think, that uh, brought him into the business. Jerry Fat is the CEO of what's now the Fat Family Restaurant franchise. We're sitting in the dining room of the original Frank Fats in downtown Sacramento, one block away from the state capitol building. The long, narrow space is lit with red lanterns. Chinese tapestries and art decorate the walls. And if these walls could talk, they would tell you a lot about California political history. We became known as the third house of the capitol. We've had some famous deals that have been made in the booths or the restaurants here on the back of cocktail napkins. Including a famous deal brokered in 1987 by then-Assembly Speaker Willie Brown, which changed the state's civil liability laws. And more than 30 years before that, then-California Governor Earl Warren was a regular here. President Eisenhower appoints Governor Earl Warren of California as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The 62-year-old Californian... Warren's appointment to Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court was big news. When Frank Fat was in D.C., he paid his friend a visit. And he invited my dad into his chambers. And the, he said the Chief Justice opened the drawer, uh, had a shot of uh, whiskey, and they had a drink in his chambers. For a Chinese immigrant to be toasted by a Chief Justice in the 1950s seems incredible. And it is. But Frank Fat's whole incredible story doesn't begin there. Frank immigrated to the United States from Canton, China in 1919. He was 16 years old. And he came here for a better life and, and actually to search for his father, my grandfather. Frank and his father didn't have a great relationship. When he finally tracked him down in Ohio... It was like he gave, him, gave my father some money and say, go make a life. And, and that was it. So Frank took the money and went to Sacramento, where his uncle lived. In 1939, he had saved up enough to buy an old Italian restaurant downtown. This was the beginning of Frank Fats. The restaurant quickly became a fixture for state workers, drawn in by Frank's warm, outgoing personality. But even when people flocked to the restaurant to eat his Chinese food, Frank faced discrimination for being Chinese. His son Jerry says when they were kids, neighbors organized to prevent them from buying a house downtown. So they had to move way out into the suburbs. But that didn't stop Frank. He was an activist in a subtle way. He wanted to uh, bring Chinese culture to the people of Sacramento. He founded the Asian Pacific Rim Festival, which features Chinese food, dance, and music, like the Capital Chinese Orchestra. It's still one of Sacramento's longest-running street festivals. Aside from a few remodels, not much has changed at Frank Fats in 80 years. They're still serving up heaping plates of their classics, honey walnut prawns, steak and oyster sauce, and Peking duck. Well, actually, there are a few more plaques on the wall. It is now 844, and new this morning, Sacramento's oldest restaurant is soon going to be honored with a very prestigious award. It's kind of like the Oscars of food. In 2013, Frank Fats won the James Beard American Classics Award. It's an award that honors a restaurant for having timeless appeal and quality food that reflects the character of its community. The award really gets at the heart of what makes Frank Fats such a beloved institution the Fat family. Jerry has five siblings who were all involved in the family business at one time or another. 
And even though Frank died in 1997, today there are nephews, aunts, and even in-laws working in everything from recipe development to restaurant operations. Like most immigrant family, you're just expected to help out in the business. When it comes to the next generation of fats taking over, Jerry says it's up to them. He knows running a restaurant is hard work, especially when your name is literally attached to the business. Restaurant is so personal. It's not like running a factory, you know, where you could just turn on the machines and have somebody watch it. Whether or not the fourth generation picks up the baton, Jerry Fat is happy to keep his father's legacy alive. One pot sticker and banana cream pie at a time. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Sacramento. Next, we're going to meet a family who isn't in business together, but the dad, Edward Agababian, was a taxi driver. His job was essential to the family's survival. But when the taxi industry was devastated by Uber and Lyft, the San Francisco family lost more than their main source of income. As KQED's Sam Harnett reports, they were saddled with a mountain of debt. Yana Kazirian has two children. The youngest, Eddie, looks just like his grandfather. What's his name? Eddie. Hey, Eddie. Edward, as my, after my dad. Yana's family is Armenian. They emigrated from Baku, Azerbaijan during the pogroms in 1991. As the Soviet Union was crumbling, Armenians in Azerbaijan were rounded up and killed. The family feared for their lives. My dad and my aunt filed for um, refugee status. You know, we got really lucky that the U.S. took us in. Yana's father, Edward, was 32. He didn't speak English, so he became a cabbie. He loved to drive. In fact, anytime we went on any trips, he preferred we drive. Edward was known for being competitive. He played chess with other drivers at the airport, and he never lost, Yana says. After his shifts, he would come home and play against her. He would try to make it easier for me. He's like, I'll play without the queen. Or, or we would play, and then I'm like about to lose, and then he rotates the chess board around. He's like, okay, I'll be you, you be me. And then he still wins. <laughs> Edward wanted to provide a secure future for his family. Some parents do that by investing in the stock market or real estate. For cab drivers like Edward, a taxi medallion was a way to pass on something to your children. But medallions were expensive. San Francisco sold them for $250,000 a pop. He thought, if anything ever happens to me, if I were to die, the family would be set. You know, you, it was like his insurance plan and his retirement plan. You used to be able to make five to $6,000 a month driving a taxi and renting the medallion out to other drivers. And you could sell the medallion if you needed to. But that was before Uber and Lyft. When those companies arrived, Edward began making less and less. Suddenly, his medallion was worthless. He became increasingly just restless and nervous. And, you know, there, there were months where, you know, they didn't have quite enough to um, make all of, pay all of their bills. And, like, I would help them out sometimes. Yana started worrying about him. He internalized everything, yeah. And that, I'm sure, did not help with his blood pressure problem and, you know, just overall health. Two years ago, the family all left on a trip. Edward stayed home to drive. He went to the airport like he did every day. There were so few fares, drivers would sit for hours in their cars. That's where Edward's friends found him. You know, his friends at the airport right away noticed something was wrong because he said, oh, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to go home. And they looked at him, and I guess he was, like, green or something. And they're like, no, you're going to the hospital. Edward's aorta had ruptured, and he soon passed away. Apparently, the doctor told us that they had asked him while they were doing, like, the scans and checking what's wrong with him, uh, does he want to call anyone at home or, like, 
talk to anyone in the family and he said oh no I don't want to make them nervous and so we didn't even get to say goodbye or anything. Edward was 59 years old. He hadn't paid off his taxi medallion and now with Uber and Lyft no one wanted to buy it. A single medallion hasn't sold in San Francisco for over two years. The family was stuck with the debt. So for a while we kept calling the SFMTA and sending them emails like under trying to understand what's going to happen. The family couldn't even drive the cab because they didn't have taxi licenses. There was nothing to do. So they defaulted on the loan, which meant a huge hit on their credit. We've never not paid for something, you know, when it was due. And so it was a very uncomfortable feeling to know that you're neglecting a payment. What would you like from the city? What do I want from the city? I don't know, just a little accountability. San Francisco made $64 million selling medallions but it says it doesn't have the money now to buy them back. More than 700 taxi drivers are stuck with loan debt, and taxi earnings are so low that many are defaulting or taking on second jobs. Yana says it's too late for her family, but she wants the city to help others who are still on the hook. For The California Report, I'm Sam Harnett. And now it's time for another letter to my California dreamer. We've been asking you to write a letter to one of the first people in your family who came to California with a dream. This week's letter comes from Hollywood. Gregory Hinton writes to his brother who left Colorado and found love and a business partner in Southern California. To my brother Scotty, in 1977, I evacuated the Red State Rockies to follow you to Southern California. You were living with Ron, a camp, handsome, and cash-strapped Laguna Beach hairdresser. When I arrived, Ron welcomed me into his Laguna paradise too. Each weekend, a caftan-clad cavalcade of characters coalesced on your deck for cocktails, manicures, and makeovers. The crooning of Saravon's Misty floated over the canyon. Look at me. I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree. And I feel like Ron's friends dubbed us the Hinton Sisters from Colorado. We all started anew. That summer I painted houses. Even with a business degree, no way would I closet myself off in a straight career. I found a place to live only two blocks away from the Boom Boom Room, Laguna's legendary beachfront gay bar. As waves lapped below, the jukebox boomed Leon Russell's Back to the Island. I was a long way from Colorado. Laguna is the Riviera of Southern California, Ron observed, and things were looking promising. He got his real estate license on the third try. You guys settled in a condo overlooking Divers Cove. I started writing in earnest. My first short story got published. I relocated to Hollywood. Ron was my biggest fan. Together you opened a restaurant named Ron's in Laguna. You ran the kitchen, Ron covered the bar. You both worked hard. And in the 80s, we all drank too much. When the restaurant folded after seven good years, you both fled the Golden State for Mom's Denver basement. Midlife sobriety gave you a fresh start, but a fast-moving brain lesion felled you at 51. Five years later, Ron died a heartbreaking leaving Las Vegas death. To honor your last wishes, and give you the last laugh, I scattered both of your ashes in Wyoming's Crazy Woman Creek. 
I miss my two brothers. As a gay man, California welcomed me as I am. I made films, I wrote novels. I found long love with my partner, Tom. I'm so proud to be a Californian. I owe that to you. And you inspired Out West with Buffalo Bill, my National Museum program series, dedicated to shining a light on the history and culture of the LGBTQ community in the American West. Last year, with bittersweet emotion, I celebrated four decades in California. Truly my golden state and my community sanctuary, especially in these times. As Ron first told me, anything is possible here, dear. Love, Gregory. That's Gregory Hinton with a letter to his brother, Scotty. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's original California dreamer. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your story, californiareport.org. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Rob Spade. Victoria Mollion is our senior editor. David Marks is our online producer. The California Report's editorial team also includes Tanya Mosley, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coca returns next week. This is the California Report magazine. Your state your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.